Hello, and welcome to the 27th episode of The Broadcast, a Chicago podcast dedicated to showcasing women who are making an impact on Chicago and their communities. For return listeners, welcome back, and thank you so much for always for your continued support. And if it's your first time listening, welcome, and we're super glad you found us. All of this is made possible because of you and our amazing sponsors and partners, including Evolve Her, Chicago's first creative co-working space and event space for women, the Insurance People, a woman and a minority-owned agency focused on small business health insurance, individual health insurance, and Medicare supplements, and of course, our usual regular podcast home, 1871, Chicago's premier hub for entrepreneurs, innovation, and technology. And I'm Becky Carroll, President and CEO of C-Strategies, and I am your host. If you live in the state of Illinois, odds are you've been getting a majority of your COVID news and updates from Governor J.P. Pritzker's daily briefings, which have become a staple for both residents and media across the state, including me. Uh, The governor's national profile has also grown exponentially over the last couple of months, along with a handful of other governors who have been tenacious and unrelenting advocates for their residents and haven't, you know, shied away from speaking out against some of the antics and policies emanating from the White House. And luckily for us, his efforts are working here in Illinois. We're not out of the woods yet, but Illinois is flattening the curve and we're getting to a level of testing needed to really properly evaluate when we might be able to emerge from this period. And the person who is his thought partner and trusted advisor through all of this is his chief of staff, Anne Caprera, who in whatever free time she has when not stuck in the middle of a pandemic can be found surfing off the coast of Costa Rica, cheering on her Philadelphia Eagles, watching Game of Thrones for the 100th time, or making cogent and hilarious commentary on her Twitter feed, which you all must check out. And she is our guest on today's episode of the broadcast. So, Anne, welcome to the show, finally. Hi, thanks for having me, Becky. I'm pleased to be here. Yay. Well, we've been uh, kicking off the podcast these days by asking guests how they and their families have been doing during this crisis. You are in a very unique spot being on the front lines of all this. So how are you doing? Uh, it's a great question. <laughs> um, I don't get asked it a lot. You know, I think this has been hard. I mean, I, I I just think it's important to kind of admit the moment that we're in. And no matter what you're dealing with right now, whether you're in a job like I have or a parent trying to um, teach a child at home or someone who's a caregiver for someone else, I just think these, these days are very hard. I, I think that the lack of not knowing when it might end is, is really difficult, and I understand the strain on everyone. I know there are a lot of people out there right now struggling with, you know, economic concerns and worries about their jobs and their livelihoods. So all of that weighs on us, uh, it weighs on the governor, it weighs on me. You know, I found a little bit of rhythm in the middle of all of this, but not not much of one because my days kind of, <laughs> you know, take on whenever crisis is right in front of us. But it's it is one of the more, if not the most difficult crisis I've ever dealt with in my career, just in terms of trying to figure out what are the next steps? How do you chart your way in and out of this? And all of us who work here in the governor's office, we love our work, but we're human too. And it's been a lot. I would say, I, I think we're at week 5,610. I can't, I don't know, I <laughs> um, 
it's just to, it's you know I want to go outside and enjoy the nice weather and kind of be a little bit more present in my own personal life than I am right now and that's hard yeah and especially hard when you have also a lot of close family that is not in a place where you can just drive your car and they can walk out on the porch and say hello and see them in person so I know it's uh, difficult and it's difficult being I think on the front lines where you are because when people want to complain or point a finger, it's very easy to do so. So I really appreciate all of you and especially the governor just persevering through this because we need you all to do that. And with that said, on a personal note, you were (laughs) recently named the fifth most powerful woman in Chicago politics and government by Chicago Magazine. Congratulations on that. But Thank you. Uh, Thank you. <laughs> but yeah, you are relatively new to the city and the state, having moved here, um, gosh, only a couple of years ago. <laughs> no, it, and, it seems um, like a very long time ago now. <laughs> it does, doesn't it? It's the, the time flies and a lot has happened since then. And for those of the, for those who don't know you yet, like just tell us a little bit about where you're from, how you got into politics, and how did you get here to Illinois? (laughs) Sure. Well, I think a lot of people who follow me on Twitter or talk to me know I'm from the Philadelphia area. I grew up there, and a good chunk of my family still lives there. But I I left Philly when I I went to college at American University in Washington, D.C. in 1997, and Really, once I moved to D.C. and I got involved in politics and government, uh, which was the, I was one of those kids that was very fortunate to know what I wanted to do with my life when I was 15. <laughs> when I when I left and I moved to D.C., as soon as I graduated from college, I had a chance to really get to work in the business of both government and politics. And my career kind of bounced around back and forth between campaigns and and government work during that entire time. I started out working at Emily's List in D.C., which is an organization that helps elect pro-choice Democratic women all around the country. They were kind of born out of the year of the woman in the early 90s Mm -hmm. and have grown to be a very big political organization around the country. Very fortunate for me, I, I got a chance to work there right after I graduated from college and was really put to work right away going out onto campaigns, specifically pretty long shot congressional primary campaigns all around the country, which was an amazing experience because I got to meet all these women who are running for office. And even at that time, which was 2003, 2004, you know, women were running for office, but not the way they are now, you know, it's right. kind of a bit of a novelty for a woman <laughs> to be um, to be running for particular for Congress, but really for any anything higher than Congress was particularly unique. So, so for me, you know, just kind of coming out at the beginning of my career, and I was really passionate about that, getting women elected to office. It was just a really awesome training ground to go out to a lot of races that, frankly, we lost. And I, you know, I always tell people you, you learn probably a lot more on your losing races than on your winning races. And 100%. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, election night is pretty much always a drink, drink situation because you're either dealing with a loss or dealing with a win. But 
you know, you, when you lose, and I think sometimes it's good to lose early in your career because it makes you really think about every choice you're making, particularly on campaigns and how you're conducting a campaign and what advice you're giving to a candidate. It really shapes the rest of your career. So I worked at Emily's List for a couple of years and ended up going to work for a woman who had been elected to Congress from a state Democratic seat in Ohio, worked for her for a while. And then I moved to Colorado 2008 to run a congressional race in the fourth district of Colorado at the time for a woman by the name of Betsy Markey, who was an amazing boss. She ran and won an incredibly Republican district. And I went back to D.C. to become her chief of staff. And that was a really unique experience for me because I was there at the very start for the first two years of the Obama administration. And to take us all the way back to that time, you know, we were dealing with uh, a really bad economy, a, you know, kind of crisis in terms of health care, and a lot of things facing the country at that point in time in terms of our international policy. It sounds a lot like we, the moment we're in right now, actually. Yeah. And so I was, you know, a chief of staff for a freshman member of Congress, and we had to vote on Obamacare and cap and trade and the stimulus bill, and there was just a lot swirling around at that time that you really had to navigate well. So I was there for two years. She ended up losing in 2010 when a bunch of Democrats lost across the country. And then I ended up at the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee for a while, doing political work for them. I was political director, deputy political director, and then political director in 2012 and 2014. We lost the Senate in 2014, so I ended up running Hillary Clinton's super PAC for the 2016 election. Had just as bad a night as everyone else. Yes. And kind of was a little bit lost after that, to be honest. You know, I had all these years kind of invested in my career. You know, I always tell people when you work in politics and campaigns, you, you kind of plan your year, your life in these two-year cycles. You know, everything's about the next election and just mm-hmm. getting to that. And then as soon as that's over, you know, you're, you're always a little bit lost. But I will say after the 2016 election, everybody was like a lot lost all at once. Um, it was like a fog of being lost. A thought you couldn't was, emerge from lost. <laughs> it was a, it was like grief and fogginess and, you know, people kind of in a state of disbelief. And so I did what, um, what I always find to be helpful in those situations, which is I went to Costa Rica to go surfing for <laughs> a, a solid month. I think I spent the entire month of December 2016 on a surfboard. <laughs> and, you know, I had these like, I would say post-election fantasies about what I was going to do with my life. And it was very much like, oh, maybe I'll stay in Costa Rica and open a surf shop. And, you know, maybe I'll (laughs) travel the world and do something totally different, which, of course, was all, you know, a little bit crazy. But, you know, that was the moment we were in. And I ended up busting up my shoulder pretty badly surfing. I just, it was an overuse injury. And I had to come back to get surgery. And... The day before I went in for the surgery, I get a call from J.B. Pritzker's assistant at the time asking if I would come out to Chicago to interview for a job to manage a potential governor's race. At the time, he was kind of still deciding if he was going to run. And I remember thinking, well, I got the surgery tomorrow. I don't really want to get on a plane and go to Chicago. 
and this seems like a lot of work and I just but you know I, I think I just decided I you got to look and see what every potential job leave is going to look like right now so so a week later once my surgeon had cleared me I got on a plane with a very uh, my arm in an enormous <laughs> sling and the airline put me in a middle seat, which I have not forgotten. Ooh. And uh, yeah, so I landed in Chicago. I got here a little bit early, let JB's office know. And, you know, I was having a coffee in a coffee shop waiting to go up to meet him. And I got a call on my phone and it was, it was JB Pritzker. And he said, can I come meet you in the coffee shop? And I said, sure, you know, you can do whatever you want. I'm here to meet you. Um, and, so he came down to the coffee shop and, um, and, you know, I, I've told this story a lot and I always, I think women get this more than anything else, you know, cause I've had this surgery done. I couldn't, I couldn't wear a suit, couldn't put my makeup on. Uh, <laughs> so I just felt like a total slub. Coming into this, this interview. And it was really, you know, when you don't have all that armor on you, you kind of feel like yeah. you're not yourself. And, a little vulnerable. Uh, a little vulnerable, a little like unkempt. You know, I'm meeting this guy who's got such an amazing reputation in the city and the state and and it's for, you know, a job running his governor's race and I'm thinking, what is he gonna think? And he was I, I knew five minutes into the interview I was gonna work for him if he asked me to. Because nice. he was so nice and kind and we immediately hit it off and we're talking about you know, his passion is early childhood education, and he just, you know, I kind of cued him up on that, and he started talking about it, and, you know, three hours later, I was getting back on a plane to go back to D.C., and uh, when I got off the plane, I had a voicemail message from him, basically being like, call me, and <laughs> the job. So, and then two weeks later, I was driving out to Chicago to get schlepping a, back out to Chicago and you haven't left since so that's good you're on you're on like a two-year roll <laughs> yes I have not left since actually it is really interesting how you say like he was so nice it's like everyone who meets him right just says how down to earth and nice and relatable you know that he is and it's just not almost what you would expect, but that's really who he is. So I can imagine it's a little hard to say no after after sitting down and having that conversation and having such an immediate connection with him. Well, I, you know, I've worked for and met a lot of politicians. And the truth is, is that a good majority of them should never have run for public office, to be honest. <laughs> yes. They either don't like people or they don't like the business of campaigning or... They don't particularly enjoy, you know, the kind of outreach that you need to do to to win an election. And Jamie's a very natural elected leader, in my opinion. Like, he just, he interacts with people very easily. You can put him in a room where he doesn't know anybody. And he will stay in that room for as long as it takes to shake everyone's hand, talk to them, shake everyone's hand pre, pre-COVID-19. But, um, <laughs> right. you know, he's. He's just, I always say to people, he is exactly what you see on TV. He is exactly what you think he is going to be. Um, and he is like that in front of the camera, and he is like that behind the camera. And that's the unique quality in any politician, but I will say particularly in people who have achieved really high elected office in the country, they're just a, you know, it's 
it's a really wonderful quality. And as someone who's worked as staff for years, it's always something you're looking for in a boss. Yes, and I think in a time like this where, you know, there's no playbook for a pandemic, to have someone who comes from a place of real, true empathy um, really counts, I think, more than ever. And I think that's why we're very lucky to have him leading us through that. And so I want to continue on our serious conversation here and, and take it towards your your famous Twitter feed at Anna <laughs> Caprera, no. Anna, Anna Caprana. Anna Caprana. <laughs> right, right. Well, it was right. an old nickname, and I, 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 I wrote that. I like took that handle when I first signed on to Twitter, and now I realize it's problematic because people think my first name is Anna, <laughs> and it's actually Anne. So, well, and yes, and for those who have not found you yet, they can find you by going A N A C A T R A N A at Twitter, and they said because it's been dubbed comedy gold and you've embraced it nicely as a means to communicate not just your personal predilection for everything Philadelphia or your musings on dumb BS that other people might say but also <laughs> day job as chief of staff and as a political thought leader and it feels like for you that it's been a part outlet part get some shit out there on the record <laughs> tool which I think it's probably been really useful during this crisis and because mm -hmm. you're in that every day. And I admit I'm still more Facebook, but I'm trying to, trying to transfer to Twitter. Um, <laughs> how do you think Twitter in particular and, and social has impacted and influenced behavior during this pandemic? It's a great question. I mean, I, just to take a step back, I mean, I have a very particular view about how somebody in my position or in any sort of political job should use and employ Twitter. You know, mm -hmm. Twitter is a very unique audience. It is not real life, it's not. The people who are on Twitter on a real consistent basis are not your normal average everyday Americans. Um, most people, it's just not part of either their job fabric or, you know, they really don't have time to scroll Twitter feeds. Or they may just be going to Twitter for news, you know, to see what's happening when a live event is going down, that sort of thing. So I always, when I use Twitter, I always make sure I remember that part of it, that I'm speaking to a very select group of people, a lot of reporters, a lot of thought leaders, a lot of people who, on the right and the left, who have really strong opinions about, you know, what should be happening in government or other places. And I have some hard and fast rules about how I use Twitter. I do mainly use it for comedy and sports conversations and TV and <laughs> that sort of thing, which I think is really what it's most well-suited for. It is not, in my opinion, a place to have really long, complicated conversations about political strategy or policy making or any of those things. That doesn't yep. mean that you don't use them, use Twitter at certain moments to try to influence a conversation or insert something into a conversation, but I think you have to be very careful about it. Um, I mm -hmm. have a very hard and fast rule that I, if I start to write a tweet and I think to myself, I probably shouldn't tweet this, then I, then I erase it. <laughs> so, then don't do it. <laughs> then I don't do it. And, you know, look, I think that's part of the problem for, you know, let's just say the president of the United States is he just goes on Twitter and does what he's thinking. And I think that's a very inefficient and frankly dangerous way to use Twitter. So during 
this pandemic with social media in general, Twitter specifically, I mean, I think it is a great way to show people that one that we really are all in this together. I mean, we've been uh, running this hashtag all in Illinois to kind of talk about all of the things that people are doing to help their neighbors, their communities. And some of it's just, you know, abiding by this stay at home order, recognizing that staying in is, you know, saving somebody else's life potentially. So I think that it's really, really, really important that when we talk about how we use social media, that we recognize, you know, the limitations, but also the opportunities. What I'd really love to see is that a lot of legislators, a lot of local political leaders, community leaders in Illinois have used Facebook, especially as a way to do Facebook lives, to communicate with mm-hmm. their constituents, to answer questions. I think it's a really amazing way to connect with people in this moment in time. I think what we're going through right now would be incredibly harder if we didn't have that means of communication. Yeah. And, and so I, I do see the value in it and I try to use it responsibly. I try to tell our team to make sure they're thinking through whatever's getting put out. We certainly use it as a means of having the governor communicate with people. And I think that it has been incredibly effective in that in that case. Yeah, I mean when you have people who are captive, you know, a captive audience because they're at home working or watching their kids or doing what you have to do at home when you're in a stay-at-home order. There are definitely people paying attention to what's being said on social. And yeah, Facebook's been really an amazing tool for that to share information and also to kind of swat away misinformation so that people are, are being kept safe, including doing the live Facebook briefings that the governor has been doing every day. They're hugely popular, get thousands of comments and (laughs) likes and whatnot, but that's the way to just get information straight to the people. And so I think that's a good segue into the main topic we're going to talk about today, which is what's been taking over every single part of all of our lives for nearly two months now, which is COVID-19. And I'd love to rewind to kind of the beginning of this. Can you remember the moment like it hit you that this pandemic was going to be a crisis unlike anything anything we've ever faced. Yeah, I actually can really remember it. But the great thing about the governor is he reads and listens to and watches everything. So it doesn't matter what the news item is, what the potential crisis is, you know, he's, he's kind of always, he, he, I think he only sleeps like four hours a night. So he consumes an insane amount of information on any 24 hour period. I mean, I like to think I'm a, you know, good hearty reader and that I <laughs> pay attention to a lot of things, but the, the governor puts me to shame. And in February, he was saying to us, hey, this is, this is going to be a problem. This is, this is really dangerous. I, I remember at one point, realizing that China was literally shutting down its entire country. And I'm, you know, looking at that going, this is, this is incredibly concerning, you know, how, it, how long before this kind of comes into the United States. But at that point, we really didn't know a lot about the deadliness of this virus, how quickly it's able to spread. We were, it was the week before St. Patrick's Day. And we were looking at what we were starting to see in Washington State and New York. Yeah. And we have 
an incredible gift in the state of some really amazing research institutions, some amazing medical institutions. And researchers from UIUC, Rush, some epidemiologists were reaching out to us saying, hey, this is really bad. And our and the and the Illinois Department of Public Health is saying the same thing. And we're sitting here, I, you know, I think it was like March 10th or 11th, looking at the St. Patrick's Day festivities planned for the weekend ahead. And you know, you've lived in Chicago, and it's a big deal here. And yep. we have parades scheduled, and the bars are usually busting at the seams, and they dye the river green, and there's a million people on the river looking at that. And, you know, we're getting all this information starting to flow in about COVID. And it's, I remember really sitting in my office thinking, oh, my gosh, this is, this is going to be really bad. And we've got to move quickly. And I think yep. the thing that was even more difficult to deal with was, you know, nobody's got anything to base this experience on, right? I mean, there's no, right. you know, like, if you've dealt with crises in government, and I know you have, Becky, like, you know, I hate to categorize them, but you've got your kind of natural disasters where it's a flood or a hurricane mm -hmm. or some really bad storm, and you could sit there and go, okay, you know, here's the arc of that crisis. Here's the time period over which we're going to have to deal with it. Here's the, you know, what the immediate crisis looks like. Here's what it looks like two or three days from now or a week from now. Even, you know, really terrible tragedies when we deal with, you know, shootings in any community, we kind of also know the arc of that. This, it was just this big, looming disaster ahead of us. And mm -hmm. I think the, the most difficult part from you know, a management standpoint, a governing standpoint, and this is where I give the governor an enormous amount of credit. It felt a lot like we were sitting in the middle of a plane crash, like a, cra a plane had crashed. And there were a lot of people who were sitting there with us who had also survived the plane crash, but who were looking around going, it can't be possible that the plane crashed. You know, it, it, it can't be happening, you know? Right. And yeah, and at some point somebody has to say, we got to get up and get out of this plane because you know <laughs> it's on fire. Out. We have to like yeah, go. <laughs> it's on fire. Let's run, you know. And um, it was that week right before St. Patrick's Day where you know the governor looked at me and I looked at him and we were like, okay, you know, we got to start pulling stuff down. Yeah. And that was really hard. I mean, I think people, you know, we're so far along in this now that people forget, but you know, that's an enormous weekend for business in Chicago um, and around the state and. To say to people, you know, we're going to cancel the parade, we're going to not allow people to go to the river, you know, we did that in conjunction with the mayor's office, and I, you know, it's her first term as mayor, and you know, having canceled St. Patrick's Day right out of the gate. I think when we mm -hmm. saw Boston and Dublin cancel their, you know, events, it really came into clarity for all of us how serious this was. But that was the moment where I was like, this is going to be something completely different, and we don't know what this is going to look like from beginning to end. Yeah, so obviously, like, you have dealt with various crises, but nothing of this magnitude, and there's literally no playbook. It's not like there was a playbook from 1918 just to whip out and be like, oh, okay, here's how they did it. And even if they did, it yeah. wouldn't apply to today, right? So so what were what was happening without, you know, having to do a big play-by-play? -play, uh, you know, what was kind of happening 
behind the scenes in those early days leading up to the stay-at-home order? Because I know, on the one hand, it was an easy, necessary decision in the sense that this had to be done, but it also is the most difficult decision because of the impact it would have. So what was that like leading up to that, that moment? I remember at one point being, you know, I'd get here early in the morning. I leave here late at night. I felt like I would just run from one end of the hallway to another to try to <laughs> deal with all the things that were coming down the pike. We made the decision very early, which I'm, I'm pleased with, and I think was the right call to, to have the governor get out every day at a particular time to talk about what was going on. Cause I think we realized right out of the gate that people needed to hear from him and they needed information. They needed like real medical information and not just have to try to sort through the craziness that was mm-hmm. coming at them at the time. We also realized, and I think this was one of the first hurdles we had to overcome. You know, I think typically when you're in the middle of a crisis and I think back to, you know, George Bush after 9-11, right? What you want to tell people, what every politician wants to tell people is it's going to be okay. Don't panic. You know, live your life. And, I, you know, I think think about Bush saying that right after the, the plane crashed into the, the Twin Towers, he was telling people, you know, you've got to go, go to restaurants, go out, go to shopping malls, you know. Um, and, and I remember taking that advice. I mean, I remember being there. Yeah, young in Washington and being like, okay, you know, I this is my patriotic duty, really, to go. Exactly, it was American duty. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and this was this is such a different thing, because really, I, and one of the first things the governor said that week that it stuck with me, that I think it was really important that we had to say to people, was, this is going to affect your daily life. It is not going to be, like nothing has changed. And we really, it was really important that we said that because what we needed to, in order to even start to control this, was for people to change their behavior. And that's an incredibly difficult thing to do. And we live in the United States. We have, you know, very important freedoms enshrined to us in the Constitution. Uh, We are not China. We are not some of these other countries that have been dealing with this. You know, our ability to restrict people's movement is, is, is very difficult. Not, by the way, something anybody wants to have to do. So we really needed to convince people that this was important enough that they stay in, that, you know, they work remotely if they could, that as we had to make decisions around schools and bars and restaurants and eventually enact a stay-at-home order, that they could embrace that and understand why we were asking them to do that. And we've made a real effort all along the way to share information about why we're doing certain things. It's hard because, you know, look, this is, the governor loves to say this, but it's it's a novel coronavirus, meaning that no one has dealt with it before. So even trying to figure out what treatments are working, what's the timeline on a vaccine, you know, what can we expect once the weather changes, you know, all of these things we don't have answers for. And I understand the, you know, the, the desire from the press, from um, residents to know, you know, give us a timeline, tell us exactly what's going to happen. All we can do is kind of follow the guidelines that our medical experts have been able to pull together. But I think the things that really guided us from the beginning and continue to guide us now, I, re- I remember in March talking to, you know, I mentioned these experts that we've been working with at the different universities around the state. And one of them was showing us a chart 
on some of the very early modeling about death rates and how many people we could expect to die based on different actions that the government took. And, you know, there was a graph with a stay-at-home order and there was a graph without a stay-at-home. And the difference in the number of mortalities was about 6,000 people. And I just remember staring at that graph thinking, this is the difference for 6,000 people for whether or not they live or die. And and the, the person we were talking to, the scientist we were talking to said, I want to be clear about this. Hours matter. Not days, hours matter. Yep. And so I that, that's something that really comes back in my head a lot um, when we try to figure out what the next steps are here. You know, this is a very difficult thing to contain. It's a very difficult thing to get a hold of. You know, we don't, the virus doesn't care that you hold a certain political opinion. The virus doesn't care that you vote for a certain person. You know, if you're susceptible to it, chances are right now it's going to find its way to you if we're not taking the mitigation efforts we need to take to keep people safe. Yeah, clearly. And I think that decision to shut down the parade for St. Patrick's Day was huge. And I mean, I know people who went out and about during that and they got COVID and almost yeah. died. I mean, you know, they're lucky because they weren't, didn't have compromised conditions, uh, underlying conditions. But that literally is the difference between life and death. And when I hear people now saying like, oh, the numbers aren't as bad as they said they would be deaths or whatever. I'm like, well, <laughs> there's a reason for that. And that's because we have been staying inside and taking all of these precautions. So, you know, well, it's good to remind people that saying, there was a starting point for this. <laughs> yeah. The thing that really enrages me about that mentality is, I mean, I've had two friends this week lose grandparents. I've had a dear friend of mine lose an uncle to this. You know, the people who are really susceptible to the worst of this virus are the least able to protect themselves. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the mentality of, well, I'm fine, or I'm not going to get it, or there's not a lot of people in my area who have gotten it, it, it just completely denies the facts around how this travels, misunderstands yeah. what's going on with people that we think are asymptomatic and carrying COVID to other people. And I, I'm sorry, but I'm not willing to say that because you're over a certain age and in a certain vulnerability category that, you know, you just have to accept that your life is going to be at a heightened risk. You know, I think we have responsibilities to each other. And I also think that if you're going to come and talk about God, talk about your faith, talk about those things, I, you know, I grew up Catholic. I know what the Bible says about looking out for one another. You know, these are, these should be fundamental tenets of our society. And this idea that it's me, 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 and not us, us, us is, is a really disturbing thing to me. Yeah, well, Greg Hines wrote about this the other day, and he's like, basically said, you know, this is really a big test for us. You know, like, yes, it would be great to get the economy humming again. Yes, it would be great to be going out and enjoying the weather again, but let's not return to normal at the sake of, of risking the lives of others. Let's do it right, right? So, and I want to you know, say when, the vast majority of people are doing that. They really are. Yes, without a doubt. And you see it in the polling, right? I mean, it's overwhelming. You never see polling like this almost ever where you have right. about 
of voters saying that they agree that this is the right thing to do and <laughs> thank goodness that they do because we are all going to be better off for it in in the long run and you know because you are managing the day-to-day -day, right it's like because you never know what you're going to get on a given day give us a little sense of like how you're just managing this through a time when you don't have that playbook i mean obviously you're going to surround yourself with really good people whose advice that you rely on obviously the governor does as well but how do you how do you execute that kind of a process day in and day out I think it's a few things. I mean, I, I'm a firm believer, and I know the governor is as well. The worst thing you can do is not make a decision, right? I mean, there's a lot of decisions to get made on any given day. Almost no decision reach my, reaches my desk, and literally no decision reaches his desk. That is easy, because if it was easy, somebody else would have made it. Mm -hmm. Four levels, though. <laughs> so, you know, you have to recognize that primary and number one in your job is making a decision and that not making a decision is making a decision. So, you know, those are those are things that you have to keep top of mind. You know, the governor said to me very early and it's really resonated with me, there are going to be moments when we make mistakes because we're dealing with something we just don't have any experience with on any mass level and nobody does. Mm -hmm. And when we do, we just need to correct those mistakes and we need to move on to the next thing and never get so stuck in the mud over one thing or be so rigid that you're unable to change and move with the situation. And it is incredibly fluid. I mean, even when we look at these executive orders we're doing and you know, trying to figure out what should stay open and what, what needs to get closed and you know, what can operate safely and what can't, they're not easy decisions and they're not simple. And I think that we just have pledged to ourselves from the very beginning that we would be open to, you know, input, constructive criticism, you know, the ideas that people have come to us with things. And by the way, a lot of people have come to us with some incredible ideas about how to deal with different struggles here. Right. So for me, a lot of it is just keeping that process moving. You know, we have some really amazing people who work in Illinois state government. My job, I see it, and I see this as my job in normal times too, is to keep the silos from getting formed around any one particular agency or policy area or even amongst our staff who are great um, and i have a we have a really great team who work here our deputy governors our deputy chief staff yes. it's a really collaborative group and you know i i think it's a blessing when you work in an office where nobody's really trying to just they're not in it for themselves you know it's, it's really mm -hmm. about the team it's about um, working with the boss in a good way. We all happen to like each other, by the way, which is really nice. Um, <laughs> well, so, it does come through, I think, that everyone is just rolling up their sleeves and just focused on getting shit done because, you know, there's no time for drama even when there isn't a crisis, but especially when there is a crisis, you just got to, like, focus on the task and move on to the next one and yeah. not make it about yourselves. And not that I want to segue into not thinking about ourselves by talking about this particular person, because I usually don't try to uh, give Trump a lot of ink on any of my social media feeds. But given a lot of the news and consternation over the last few days that he has helped to exacerbate out in various states with people, 
objecting to the stay-at-home order. I, I would really like to, maybe you can help articulate this, to remind people and explain just how Trump failed states like Illinois mm-hmm. across the board in this crisis, because I, I still don't think people fully appreciate the jam that he put our states in and your backs were up against a wall to fight not only for time, but fight for what was needed to give our state a chance and to, to beat this thing back. Right. And, you know, what's frustrating, and the governor says this a lot, and he means it, you know, we work with people at FEMA, um, at HHS, the Department of Health and Human Services, at other levels of the federal government who are just, they're good people, they're working hard, they're trying to do their best in an incredibly challenging situation. What's been most difficult, I will say, with Trump's leadership has been, there. we have so many material needs in the middle of this crisis. The most obvious, the, the one that gets talked about a lot in the press is what we call PPE, personal protective equipment. It's the masks mm-hmm. and gowns and other things that medical providers, first responders, nursing home nurses, you know, need to be able to wear. And this is not the mask that you're, you know, you're constructing at home. This is, these are medical masks that pre- prevent you know, these microbes from getting into someone's lungs. And when you have a nurse at rush, let's say, who is, you know, spending her entire day working with patients on a COVID floor, having those masks, gowns, gloves, all those things is really important. And and they have to be high quality. They have to be delivered in a timely fashion. We have to be able to replenish them once they're, you know, burned out. And this just requires a tremendous amount of pr- procurement. Um, you have to kind mm-hmm. of figure out how the supply chain works and when this all began, I think when when any crisis hits the United States, the, the, the fundamental test that a president, Democrat or Republican, has to answer to is, are, are you showing up in that moment to provide what people need? I mean, I, I think when you think back to like Katrina and what happened there, one of the biggest problems of that crisis for, for Bush from a political angle was that people were turning on their TV and seeing, you know, Americans standing on their rooftop pleading for help. And, you know, we have an image of our country of, you know, when when disaster strikes, you know, the federal government is going to show up and it's going to help. And what's been so difficult with this is you would think after the initial outcry when we were all kind of dealing with this in the early days saying we don't have enough of this personal protective equipment. Um, in some places that they were desperate for ventilators, which is really what is keeping people alive who get the worst of, of the coronavirus. Um, and Trump was kind of throwing up his hands and going, well, it's up to the state to find this stuff. <laughs> what was happening behind the scenes still is happening here, is we're all scrambling to try to get that, you know, bu- literally purchase that equipment, literally buy those ventilators. What does that look like on a day-to-day basis? Well, I, you know, I've got an entire team now in the governor's office who do virtually nothing but this. Um, they're wow. not people who were starting as procurement experts. They just had to become them because there was no other way to, to get this moving quickly. There's very little of this uh, equipment is, is actually produced in the United States. Most of it's produced in Asia, and actually most of it's produced in China. Um, it's almost impossible 
to buy directly from a manufacturer. So, you know, it's not like you can call up 3M and say, I'd like a million masks. They don't mm-hmm. have access to those supplies right now. So what's happening is I probably get 100 emails every day or so from people offering, you know, I've got access to PPE. You can buy PPE for me. You know, it, by the way, it's very difficult <laughs> to decipher what to do with these emails because sometimes they come from somebody you know, but it's like somebody they know and that person knows another person. I mean, the, the whisper down the chain situation here is incredibly difficult to deal with. People are, you know, there's states that are just getting scammed left and right. We have a, you know, a whole system set up to try to vet anybody that we're purchasing from. But, you know, in the middle of all of this, you have a lot of the people that you're negotiating with going, well, I've got, you know, another state on the phone and they're willing to pay a dollar more a mask. Or, you know, I'm working with this country and they're willing to upfront the money, which, you know, of course we can't do as a state government. So, right. So it's it's wild. I mean, JB's described it as the wild, wild west. That is what it is. And, you know, we've all, Republican governors, Democratic governors, have been begging the president to employ the Defense Production Act and, and start producing these materials and providing them to the states on a long-term consistent basis. And I will tell you where this is going to become an even bigger problem than it is now. In order to go back to normal, if you will, we have mm-hmm. to be able to provide PPE on a consistent long-term basis to our healthcare institutions and our first responders. And mm-hmm. if we don't have a supply chain that supports that, um, which right now we don't, this is it. Because you're cobbling it together. Problem. Yes, we're literally cobbling it together. And it's it's stressful, it's hard, it's just, you know, I mean, we had to literally charter planes to bring PPE back from China. And to me, that's insane. I mean, I, I just and, think it's a And no state should be forced to have to find a way to fly a plane to China and bring PPE back in. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really disturbing. And the fact that the administration still has not taken the steps to kind of have to remove that responsibility out of the hands of the states really says something. And I'm I'm guessing that in the middle of all this, you've probably gotten to work with, you know, well, obviously we have a lot of heroes in this fight, without a doubt, the people who are on the front lines helping to save lives and hospitals and whatnot across Illinois. But then, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of people that you've been able to meet along the way that we don't see every day or know because they're behind the scenes that have played essential roles in preparing, you know, our state to beat back mm-hmm. on this crisis. Like, who are some of those people you've been working with and, um, you know, how have you, you know, just found people just to, to step up and, and do something that was not in their job description to do? <laughs> well, I would, I want to start with Sol Flores, who I know you know, and who's our Deputy Governor for Health and Human Services, who has just been a rock in the middle of all this. Um, you know, when Sol didn't, certainly didn't think six months ago, 12 months ago, that um, our Department of Public Health, which she oversees, was going to have to be responding to a pandemic. And, you know, she's had to shift everything to troubleshoot all of the problems that come up with a crisis like this. And it's it's 24-7 work. It's, uh, it never ends. Um, she has 
amazing personality and just a lightness about her, even when dealing with the most <laughs> difficult things that I, I find just both reassuring and really commendable because I think that what we're doing right now is really hard and I know it's hard on her. So I would, you know, Soul is, Soul is one of my heroes in the middle of all this. And then Dr. DK, who you see in front of the, the cameras every yes. day. Yes. Um, <laughs> Our new local kind of <laughs> superstar. <laughs> yeah. I mean, she's, she's just a rock, you know, I mean, she's, she's got kids, she has a family you know, I think before this, she had at least some semblance of order to her life. And now it's every day, all day, conference calls early in the morning, press conference, conference calls late at night, you know, dealing with just things that we never thought were going to have to cross her desk or anyone's desk. And she's just a really lovely person to work with. And I'm, I consider myself incredibly lucky to have a chance to work with her behind the scenes. And then finally, I'll tell you, you know, look, there's a core group of us that come into the Thompson Center every day. You know, we've kind of quarantined ourselves over the course of this so that, you know, we could, we would be able to do our jobs and come in and out. Mm-hmm. And, and I am so grateful to the people that come into this building and make sure that we get temperature checks when we come in the front door and make sure that the parking garage is working and clean the governor's office at the end of every day. It's just, you know, these, these people are heroes and they're, they're, they're doing their part to make sure that everybody in the state is staying safe and, you know, we can get the information and the collaboration that we need done during this time. Yeah. Cause you still got to do all the basics in order to focus on the big, crazy important things that you're facing every day and what do you think you've maybe learned most about yourself as a person and someone in leadership position during a time (laughs) like this on the front lines of a crisis every day (laughs) I think that I, you know, look, I, I, I get tired like everybody else. I get frustrated. You know, I've, I've always kind of, you, you always wonder how you're going to deal with a moment like this, right? You know, you're just like, okay, if the, if the kind of the worst comes down the, the path, you know, are you going to be the sort of person that's running around screaming that, that the sky is falling in? Or are you going to be able to kind of deal with the day to day? I, I'm really bolstered mm-hmm. by the people who, I work with who are just very calm, focused individuals, the governor and I, I I mean, I, we have an amazing working relationship here. And, you know, I think we also have an ability to kind of step back occasionally and look at the entire situation and just recognize how crazy and absurd it can be on any given day. We, we try to continue to kind of joke with each other, make each other laugh. (laughs) You know, I think you need to have that in this situation. But I think the one thing that I am very clear on moving forward is that there can't be any blinking in these moments. You don't get to stop and say, oh, my gosh, woe is me. This is, this is so hard. You know, you just yeah. kind of have to keep moving. And right. um, and that, you know, I, I, I hope that coming out of this, you know, I'll be able to keep moving and keep our team moving and work with the governor to keep the state moving because I think those are the things that everybody needs in this moment. 
Well, speaking of that, I mean, obviously COVID is, has taken over so much of what you all are doing and every other government for that matter, but things like paving roads and paying bills still need to get done. So how mm-hmm. are you able to kind of balance managing the crisis with all these other day-to-day things that need to happen to keep government operating? I'm able to do it because we have amazing public servants that work for the state. We have the cabinet that works for the governor, the individuals that work in these agencies. This is their a government employee, public servants who have been, frankly, maligned for a really long time. Mm-hmm. People have stepped up in every way possible during this crisis and have been smart and creative and have figured out ways to do their jobs even in the midst of all the challenges that we have at this moment in time. And I, you know, I take a lot of strength from them. I I wouldn't be able to do my job if they weren't doing theirs so well. And I, you know, I value that a great deal as we move forward. Well, and the crisis also obviously impacted the legislative session, which we're supposed to be kind of in the heart of it right now that we've entered the month of May. And I thought, you know, the governor's budget address was cautious but hopeful and included a lot of goodwill towards reversing so much harm that had been caused um, to the state after four years of Bronner. So generally speaking, and I know I don't want to put you on the spot for anything specific, but what do you think most people should expect to emerge from this session given that the process is not fired up on all cylinders now? I think that... We have incredibly smart people and incredibly devoted people who work as legislators in the state. And I think that they're going to do what they have to do to prioritize the most important items. I, you know, I think that mm-hmm. we've got a budget that's going to have to pass. I think there's other kind of must-dos in the legislature. I'm sure there are things related to the current crisis, the economy, our recovery, public health that are going to need to be looked at. But, you know, I think that there was a, Rich Miller wrote about this in CapEx, but we had, you know, at the beginning of this year, the governor has a whiteboard in his office and he had a Mm -hmm. list of things that we were looking at for the legislative session and a lot of priorities and, you know, criminal justice reform, some healthcare work and other things around budget and the economy that we were really looking at. And I think about two or three weeks into this crisis, he I was in there with him and he erased all of it. You know, he was kind of grossly erasing the whiteboard. And he looked at me and he was like, you know, I don't know that we're going to be able to tackle any of these things right now. And I went up to the whiteboard and I wrote, one, stay alive, two, preserve democracy, and three, budget. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes you've just got to focus on what's right in front of you. You, you've got to get through the, the immediate thing that's happening to you. And right now, there's nothing more important for the legislature, for our other constitutional officers, for the governor, for every elected official in the state, than saving as many lives as you can. That is the most important thing any of us can do. So, yep. you know, I think that everything else stems out from that. And we've got to kind of keep that perspective as we're dealing with it. Yeah, I mean, I always kind of talk about it in the context of, yes, it's a lot of short-term pain and difficulty, but it's without a doubt the best for 
the long term. And I have no doubt that in a year from now, two years from now, three years from now, people are going to look back at this and analyze and know that the right things were done as difficult as they were. But I want to like take your mind off all of this for like, you know, 60 seconds and ask you a political question outside of all this, which is what you'd probably normally be doing in your free time just as a, as someone who has uh, as much experience with you as you in this space. But um, as you, you kind of got at earlier, as we all unfortunately know, 2016 was a pivotal and difficult year for Democrats and you ran Priorities USA. And, you know, now that in 2020, you know, we find ourselves in an unprecedented, uncertain position on the heels of the November election. But when you do get these little slivers of moment to think about the national political landscape, how do you see this crisis playing out for Democrats in the race for the White House, as well as maybe senators and and governors across the country? Well, I think it's always difficult to to understand how things are going to look in November and May. I think right now, what you're seeing is some very good polling for Democrats in terms of the presidential election, but also in terms of particularly the Senate elections, which I pay a lot of attention to because I think they're mm-hmm. good indicators of kind of what's going on at a local level. Yep. And what's remarkable to me is that you're seeing candidates, Democratic candidates in Arizona, Colorado, North Carolina, and Maine polling very well against Republican incumbents and some who have been in the Senate for a very long time, some who recently won, but, you know, they're, they're running for reelection for the first term. And I, I think if I was a Republican running um, for, for Congress, for Senate, or for the White House, that I would be very scared at mm-hmm. the numbers right now. Now, look, Americans expect competency out of their government, and they can see it, whether it's a Republican or a Democrat, and I will say we have Republican governors who are doing a hell of a job in the middle of all this. We have Democratic governors who are doing a hell of a job in the middle of all this. When you look at the polling, voters just see that. I mean, they really, they can feel it. They understand it. You know, you look at uh, Republican governors in Massachusetts and Maryland who are, you know, sitting on record high Mm -hmm. polling numbers, how they've handled it in Ohio. And so... I also think that it's going to matter what action the Senate in particular takes to help states, because every state right now is dealing with, you know, a potentially large hole in their state budget through no fault of their own. And the services that we provide for everyday citizens, that social safety net that takes care of people in times of crisis, you know, none of us can do that without additional funding from the federal government. And I think that if I were a Republican, I would be paying very close attention to what I'm doing to help particular, you know, mm-hmm. states recover from this in the months ahead. Yeah, it's going to be a big test, and people are paying attention. I yeah. think, again, we have a captive audience, and people are watching, and they're paying close attention, and they're reading, and they're seeing in real time what their leaders are doing, and leadership really matters right now, regardless of party. And I only hope that Senate and Congress in general can have its senses about yeah. them to do the right thing and weather this. So for our last question, it's a rare, it's a rarity when you get to work through 
a crisis like this, right? I mean, we have things like 9-11 and very other few moments in time that everyone experienced and everyone was impacted by it in some way. So if you do a TED Talk someday, you write a book about leading a state through a crisis like this, what are you thinking like it might possibly be called? Fifty Shades of Cray, the pandemic story. <laughs> I think it's probably what I would call it. <laughs> Fifty Shades of Cray. That was that is very that is very uh, Twitter ready. I just want to put that out. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I I like to try to take time as much as I can to reflect on kind of what I'm what I've learned, what I'm learning, what worked, what didn't work. Um, yeah. And so I, I've never experienced anything like this. I, honestly, I hope I never do again, <laughs> to be honest. But I, I think you learn from every every crisis you go through, every hard time you have to weather. And I just hope that I come out the other side of this, we come out the other side of this, smarter, wiser, uh, more caring and kinder to each other, and with a better sense of what our country needs to look like going forward. Oh, I so hope that's the silver lining in all of this to know how really interconnected that we all are. And I just want to say I'm really proud of you, everyone over there in the governor's office, our governor. I've told people numerous times how lucky I am to be living in Chicago and Illinois right now through this. So thank you on behalf of millions of others in the state of <laughs> Illinois and for just taking the time to join us and give us I think some really powerful and interesting and frank insight to all of this and continue to be well. Well, thank you. You too, Becky. And um, stay safe, stay home. Uh, hopefully I'll talk to you soon. Peace. As always, the broadcast is brought to you by C Strategies, a strategic communications and public affairs firm, bringing passion and veteran experience to the help our clients meet their business goals. Thank you again to our sponsors of all per the insurance people and our podcast host, at least in, in the, the <laughs> old normal, uh, 1871. The broadcast is produced and edited by Tweed Thornton. Additional editing provided by Nicholas Fedora. Music by Christy Bennett's Fumi Chipsy Project. To learn more about these strategies and the broadcast, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at C Strategies C-H-I. So come, let the world